0: Bible biogs in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, one character at a time. Author, pastor and Bible teacher Mike Beaumont is in conversation with
1: David Taverner. In this episode, King Hezekiah we're going to be thinking about. King Hezekiah, Mike, is uh, amongst many kings in the southern kingdom that correct? I mean, w- where does
0: Hezekiah fit in? like, Yeah, that's right. Southern Kingdom. How did the Southern Kingdom come about? Well, let's just refresh our listeners' minds. When King Solomon died in 930 BC, he was succeeded by his son Rehoboam. And a lot of the northern tribes had been feeling incredibly burdened by Solomon, particularly his building projects, the taxes that had been imposed on them for building the temple and for building palaces and so on. And so they came to Solomon's son, Rehoboam, and said, look, your dad made life really hard for us. We really need some relief here. He consulted the elders who said, well, maybe you should be listening to them. And then he consulted his young mates who said, "Nah, show them who's boss round here, which he did, and whereupon they showed him who was boss as well. (laughs) And the entire 10 northern tribes split from the south in 930 BC, And from that point on in the history, the ten northern tribes become known as Israel. The two southern tribes become known as Judah. And Hezekiah, a descendant of King David, unlike those in the north, who were just a whole bunch of ragamuffins from all sorts of different backgrounds.
1: Geographically, where are we talking about? When you say the northern and the southern kingdom, so where is the southern
0: kingdom? The southern kingdom is Jerusalem and south. Okay. So, what we now know as sort of uh, Samaria in Bible times, Galilee, that whole area, actually a much larger area, in fact. The the south was quite small and in some ways quite protected as well. It was up in the hill country, away from the main coastal road where all the great armies passed through, so it was somewhat sheltered, unlike the Kingdom of Israel in the north, which had major highways passing right through it. So the armies of Syria or Egypt, frequently came down there and clashed. So we're looking at a king from that southern area of Judah.
1: And he's the one king in this southern kingdom over a period of, what, hundreds of years who reigns.
0: Yes. In the south, the south lasted from 930, when Solomon died, right through to 586 BC, when Babylon would eventually conquer it. Now, we here are at the end of the 8th century, just going into the 6th century. So King Hezekiah comes to the throne around 715 BC till around about 687 BC. And he becomes king when he's just 25 years old.
1: Goodness me. And the superpower at the time, just to get again a sense of the context here.
0: Two great superpowers. One to the southwest. Egypt. Egypt's obviously played a big part. We came across that in previous episodes. That was where the people of God had been enslaved for many years. But over the generations to come, Egypt was still pretty much a world power. Over to the northeast, in what we would now see as sort of the Iran Iraq area, the great empire of Assyria at this stage. And the thing about two great opposing world powers is. Well, they oppose one another and they frequently get into conflict. And both Assyria and Egypt will play a part in this period. So you've got to imagine two huge powers, Mm. militarily and economically, hugely powerful. And little Judah sandwiched as a football right in the middle between them, ready to be kicked around.
1: Mm. And King Hezekiah in, in charge of that tiny, relatively speaking, tiny kingdom. Yeah. Um, coming to power at, uh, as you say, quite a young age as well. H- how, how did he come to become king?
0: Well, he succeeded his father, um, which is consistent with all the kings in the south. As I mentioned, in the north, a whole bunch of upstarts just kept killing one another off and there was no Davidic descendant. But in the south, they were true descendants of King David. And his father had been King Ahaz. Now, Ahaz was not a good guy. He was pretty wicked, um, introduced, Baal worship. He even sacrificed one of his sons Mm. in the fire, and he was pretty weak. He, He actually was looking to Assyria, thinking Assyria would help them, and ended up really just becoming a vassal state of Assyria. So you've got the son of a father who's been wicked and weak, And so what stands out about Hezekiah, what is so amazing is that this young 25-year-old guy just launches onto the scenario here as such a godly, godly man.
1: So despite his father, it wasn't the case of like father like son then. It was was actually almost the opposite.
0: Exactly. And he really had set his heart on serving the Lord. Looks like his mum had a big part.
1: Could it have been that because of what he saw in his father, he didn't want to have that repeated in his own life?
0: Yeah, could well have been. I mean, we're not told that. But he certainly set his heart on wanting to be a follower of the living God and to live in a godly way. And in fact, one of the first things that he does is to dismantle some of the religious clutter that his father had established and stuff that had become... Misused. So, in Two Kings eighteen, we we find that uh, as well as removing all the high places and the sacred stones that A has it set up, he broke into pieces the bronze snake that Moses had made, because the Israelites had started worshiping it. Isn't it interesting that what had been the salvation of the past, when Moses had set up his bronze serpent in the wilderness, and people had been spared by going to it, now becomes a snare in the present. I think that's such a lesson for us to be careful, not to take things from the past that God has used and somehow so raise them up that they become the most important thing that we end up worshipping them rather than the God who gave them. And that had happened here. So gets rid of all the idols, get rid of the high places, gets rid of this bronze snake, even though Moses had made it. It wasn't too precious for him for that because he saw what it was doing. Why did he do it? Well, the Bible tells us he did it because he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. He wanted to be wholehearted towards God.
1: But just to be clear, this is the people of God we're talking about, who you say have slipped into worshipping
0: idols and pagan gods. I know. I mean, don't know about you, but sit here thinking, how on earth did that happen? How could they go from worshipping the one true living God to idolatry. And I think one of the reasons lies in the kind of idolatry that Canaanite religion was. Because this is not just about, oh, let's set up an idol and worship it. Baal worship, which was the fundamental Canaanite religion, was a highly sexualized worship. It had temple prostitutes. Part of your worship could actually involve going to the shrine having sexual intercourse with a temple prostitute. Because in doing that, people felt that you were calling on Baal, who was a fertility god. You were like trying to stimulate him to send fertility on the earth with the rains and the crops. So, you know, to a, a carnal mind, this was really, frankly, a very attractive religion. You could have religion and yet give yourself to things like that.
1: This was in the glorious temple that Solomon had built?
0: Yeah. But sadly, the temple had got really run down by this stage. Because the story of Hezekiah is told, yes, in in two kings, but we also get the account in two chronicles. Now, kings and chronicles, very similar, but written at different periods of history. Kings written when Israel went into exile to answer the question, how did we end up here? Chronicles written when they come back out of exile to answer the question, is God still with us? And so the writers are going through their history answering that question. And Chronicles, in saying, you know, is God still with us? He goes back to Hezekiah, sees him as one of the good kings, and said, Yeah, God is still with us because he has always had his faithful people. And so in 2 Chronicles 29, we find a pretty detailed account of how Hezekiah has to purify the temple. Yeah, that temple you were asking about, Mm. the one that Solomon built, Mm. the glorious one. Well, by Hezekiah's time, we find it had actually got really run down. It had been neglected. Mm. In fact, in 2 Chronicles 29, we read that in the first month of the first year of his reign, in other words, this is one of the first things he did as king. He opened the doors of the temple of the Lord, and repaired them. My goodness, it seems like wicked King Ahaz's father had shut the temple doors. And you know, this is the trouble. When we try to blend God with other things, you can guarantee the other thing always wins. Because it always has, at a surface level, a seemingly bigger attraction. That's what his dad had done. He'd not got rid of God. He wanted both alongside. But little by little, God had taken the lesser place to the point where the temple doors were even closed. And the first thing Hezekiah does is he says, let's get those temple doors open. Let's get in there and into the presence of God again. To you and me, it seems incredible. How on earth could that have happened among the people of God? But hey, church history is full of times when people thought they were being religious and doing what god wanted and yet having lost the heart of that
1: and he was in charge so he could <laughs> he could say what he wanted and this is what he wanted and this is what then happened presumably
0: absolutely and the temple was beautifully refurbished and restored uh, once again he removes all elements of paganism the other thing we find in chronicles is besides like doing the temple up he restores the worship in it the the worship had become neglected and and second-rate and the, half-hearted. The, the,
1: the services. The yeah.
0: services themselves. Right, okay. So he comes in and and, and renews things. You know, this is like a, a new young pastor coming into your church, isn't it? Full of ideas and vision and wanting mm. to change stuff. Listen, probably many of us have faced that and thought, wow, what's all this new stuff got? Probably the people felt the same, but this guy had heard God. His heart was on God. He knew what he wanted to do, and he knew the most fundamental thing that he had to do was to get that temple Functioning again. Why? So the sacrifices could be offered again. And so the living God could truly be present among his people as he promised to be. Uh,
1: Yeah, he was going back to basics in many respects.
0: Yes, there's nothing new that he does. He's simply going back to fundamentals. Do you know what? Again, in church history, revivals so often come, and this was nothing less than a revival. Revivals so often come when people get back to basics. That doesn't mean getting back to how things have always been done, but it does mean getting back to the heart of what things are done for. And that's what Hezekiah did. And that's why he stands out as such a shining light at this period of Judah's history.
1: As you've indicated, it's easy to get distracted over time and to drift into unnecessary additions.
0: Absolutely. And you know what some of those additions like had introduced were bad. Some were probably neither here nor there. Some were probably good, but he had lost the heart of the whole thing. And so what Hezekiah wants is to get us back to the heart of true relationship with the living God.
1: I think anybody who visits Jerusalem nowadays has the opportunity of visiting Hezekiah's tunnel. Now,
0: what's that all about? I've walked down it. It's an amazing thing to do. Hezekiah was living at a time when there was this tension between Assyria and Egypt. And Assyria had a policy of expansion at this time. Now, it had already conquered the northern kingdom of Israel in 721 BC. In other words, it's now sitting on Judah's doorstep. And what Assyria is about to do is to start picking off all the other little states round about. So Hezekiah is not that heavenly minded that he's no earthly use. Hmm. Yes, he's restored the temple and restored worship. But he also knows he needs to be very practical. So one of the things he knows, he can see what Assyria is going to do next. They're going to invade. And the main way, that you conquered nations in ancient times, was you surrounded their city. You didn't even have to battle against it. You sat them out, you waited till their water and their food had run out. So Hezekiah is pretty smart. He thinks, we need to ensure a good water supply for Jerusalem. There was a spring outside the city walls, the Gihon Spring. But to get there, you had to go out the walls, through the gate, down the path, with your bucket, pick the water, come back. Assyria wouldn't be standing for that, would it? Hmm. So Hezekiah, a very shrewd guy, realizes that what he needs to do is he needs to build a tunnel, an underground tunnel to get from the city to the source of water that the Assyrians, when they come, wouldn't be able to see. A secret passage. A secret passage. And do you know what? Here's the amazing thing they started digging from opposite ends. And without any of the modern equipment that we have these days, they met in the middle. Tell me how they did that. And the amazing thing is it wasn't even in a straight line because the tunnel follows like clefts in the rock Mm -hmm. and where they hit hard rock, they went round. And even though they started from opposite ends, they met. And as you walk down the tunnel today, you can see a point midway where the chisel marks suddenly change direction. And that was where the tunnel makers met and still today there's water flows through that tunnel takes about 40 minutes to walk the length of it turn your torch off down there and it's pitch black so here is a really really shrewd guy at the same time by the way he's strengthening his army so he's got his eyes and heart clearly fixed on God but he's got his hands ready for what he knows is coming and prepares in this way.
1: And what difference did that secret underground passage make?
0: It made a huge difference. Because when eventually Assyria attack and surround Jerusalem, they've got, of course, their supply of water. So it proved to be hugely significant.
1: When Assyria did then march on Jerusalem, what was Hezekiah's reaction? What was his response? What was the first thing he did?
0: Huh. This is a really great part of the story. The year now is 701 BC. And Assyria, having dealt with some of the other peoples round about, decide to attack Jerusalem. Sennacherib is the new king. He'd succeeded uh, King Sargon II in 705 BC when he was killed in battle. And so there's like a renewed push from Assyria. A number of states hope to reassert their independence in like the transition between the two kings. But Sargon sort of, Sennacherib, sorry, turned to to deal with them one by one. By 701, he's, he's got to Judah. He surrounds the capital. Now Hezekiah is caught up. In some of Sennacherib's writings that you can still see in archaeological deep, Effects. It says, Hezekiah, I shut up like a bird in a cage. He was feeling really proud. Hmm. Doesn't tell us how the story went on, by the way, Hmm. in his own account. So, what he does is he surrounds the city, and the commander of his army um, sends this message basically saying, Look, here you are surrounded. There's no way that you can win. Look at all the other nations round about. Have any of their gods saved them? Answer, no. So why don't you just give in to us and we'll be really nice to you? Yeah, we all know what Assyrians being nice meant in those days. So he gets this message. First reaction of Hezekiah is to come before God. 2 Kings 19 tells us that when Hezekiah heard this message from the Assyrian commander, he He tears his clothes. He puts on sackcloth and ashes, a a symbol of mourning, repentance, dependence on God, and he goes into the temple. He goes to meet with God.
1: Wouldn't it be more logical to have sent back a message to rebuff the
0: threat? It probably would, but I think this is, again, a, a measure of Hezekiah's heart. The first thing he does is he turns to God. Now, I don't know about you, but, you know, very often when when things start to go wrong in my life, the first thing I want to do is try and fix it. And then I pray or I'll fix it and remember to pray while I'm trying to fix it. Here's a man who says there is no way to fix this. Only God can fix this. And so he goes to the temple and he takes the letter that the Assyrian commander has sent to him. And he spreads it out before God.
1: The threatening letter.
0: Yeah. He says, God, would you please look at this? Would you see what the enemies are saying here? And God sends Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, oh. who was is living at this time, and God sends him with a message to Hezekiah, a message that says, listen, I've heard your cry. It's actually a really beautiful poem that Isaiah pronounces. And he pronounces judgment over the Assyrian army. There's one phrase I really love in his declaration. He says, I know where you stay and when you come and go and how you rage against me. And because you rage against me and your insolence has reached my ears, I'll put my hook in your nose and a bit in your mouth, and I will make you return by the way that you came. It's like the picture of leading an animal. Here is this mighty army, and God says through Isaiah, it's just like a bullock. We're going to put a ring in its nose and a bit in its mouth, and we're going to lead him back by the way that he came.
1: Because you were saying just now that Hezekiah had strengthened his army, he'd built up his army, so there was strength there. Yeah. But he was still facing a superpower. He was. Um, but he could have relied on the strength of his army.
0: And it's interesting he doesn't do that, is it? And it's, again, this thing of the first thing he does is he goes to God. And I think that's what blesses God's heart. When the first thing we do, sure, we may need to be practical, but the first thing we do is that we go to God. And so Isaiah prophesies that God is going to take Assyria back. He promises to Hezekiah that that year they'll be eating from the the crops and things round about, because all of this is gone, and declares that the king of Assyria is not going to enter.
1: Presumably the numbers don't add up. What is being faced with Assyria, the strength of their army, against Hezekiah's army anyway, yeah. the numbers don't add up. Do they? Not
0: at all. And I think we have to remember that the Assyrian army at this time was the most mighty army the world had ever known. They were also renowned for being incredibly brutal. I mean, the way that they dealt with some of their captives was too awful for us to broadcast here. So you are facing an overwhelming army, huge numbers out there. Um, We know there were at least 185,000.
1: 185,000 soldiers.
0: Now, how do we know that? Because in 2 Kings 19, the story tells us what happened. After Hezekiah had spread his request before God and Uzziah had prophesied Assyria's defeat. The Bible says that that night, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. And when they woke up the next morning, there they were, all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. Something happened. That night, the angel of the Lord did the fighting. I love it when we see in the Bible, God doing the fighting for us. So many of us want to fight ourselves. And here's an example of God doing the fighting for us. How did it happen? We aren't told. Was it something miraculous? Absolutely. But was it something miraculous using human means as well? Quite possibly. Things like bubonic plague have been known to wipe out such large numbers incredibly rapidly.
1: In a sense, it doesn't matter. It happened.
0: It happened. And all 185,000, he's left with, we don't know how many, but it says that, you know, he returned back to Assyria. So God has intervened on behalf of Hezekiah. God has done the fighting for him. Why? Why? because he put his trust in God. So there were at least 185,000 in the army. Who knows how many more? That was a huge army. Think of how small Jerusalem was mm. in those days. I mean, even today, anyone who's been to Jerusalem know that the old wall city is still pretty small. It was even smaller at this point. 185,000 plus surrounding you. No hope, really, no matter how well you've prepared your army.
1: That God protected that little kingdom, that little city because of Hezekiah's faithfulness and prayer.
0: Because of Hezekiah's faithfulness and prayer and because God had a purpose for that city and for that people. It was going to be through the descendants of Judah and David as king of Judah that one day Messiah would come, not just for Israel and Judah. for the whole world. So protecting his people was incredibly important. By the way, the story uh, didn't really end there for the king of Assyria either, because um, the chapter ends by telling us that one day, so he's back home now uh, in Assyria. And one day while he was in the temple of his God, uh, two of his sons came and simply cut him down with the sword and one of them succeeded him (laughs) as the king. So God saw this thing right through. It's almost as if God was saying, you dare to come and threaten my people and my purposes. Watch out, boy.
1: Mm. How did this faithfulness on Hezekiah's part play out you know, throughout his life, later in life? Um,
0: I believe he, he became ill, didn't he? Yes, he did. And the truth is the Bible never presents people as plaster cast saints. These are all real people who had real struggles like you and I, Yeah, they had great moments of faith and sometimes moments of weakness. And in uh, 2 Kings chapter 20, we we find two final stories about Hezekiah. The the story in chapter 20 begins with, it says, Hezekiah becoming ill to the point of death. And uh, he's desperate and he calls out to God once again and says, God, please remember, please remember how I've sought to be faithful. And God sends Isaiah once again, the prophet Isaiah, with a promise that he is not going to die. And Isaiah gets them to prepare a a poultice of, uh, what is it, Boil uh, a figs, that was right, uh, to put on the the boils that he had. And Mm. somehow that helped. And Hezekiah recovers and he said, here's a little moment of unbelief. He says, yeah, Isaiah, but but how will I know? How will I really know I'm going to get better? And Isaiah says, well, this is what God's going to do. He's going to give you a sign. The sun's shadow coming down on the steps. Do you want them to go forward or back? <laughs> and he says, I'll have them go back. And that's exactly what happened. It looks like there was a staircase in Jerusalem that they used as a sort of sundial. Yeah. And by seeing where the sun came on each step, Gave them a rough approximation of what time it was. So he's asking for the clock to turn back. Do you know what? God is great at turning the clock back, literally and metaphorically. God's the God who can redeem things. That's what he does here. He gets his sign and um, Hezekiah does continue to live. But there's a sad little story with which it ends, again, showing... He isn't perfect. We saw his lack of perfection there in asking for a sign. By the way, asking for signs in the Bible are always a sign of lack of faith, Mm -hmm. not having faith. Mm. But at the end of 2 Kings 20, he gets envoys coming from Babylon. Now, Babylon was an area sort of within Assyria, but is becoming a growing power inside the old kingdom and will soon take it over it will become the next superpower right Mm -hmm. and so envoys come from babylon to visit him and uh hezekiah is feeling rather pleased with himself you know that the new and upcoming superpower want to come and see him you know he he must be quite important mustn't he
1: he's not reading between
0: the lines well he's obviously missed this one hasn't he he brings them in and He shows them everything, shows them all the palaces and the stores and the treasures. And then, yeah, good old Isaiah pops up again and says, excuse me, who were those men? (laughs) And he said, oh, they were envoys from Babylon. And what did you show them? Oh, I showed them everything. I showed them all the resources that we have. There's nothing that I didn't show them. And Isaiah sees straight through it. He sees that what this is, is pride. And prophesies and says, Hezekiah, because of your pride, the day is coming when none of this will be left. None of the treasures, none of the silver, none of the temple, none of the palace. And your descendants are going to be carried away to a distant land. He was prophesying the exile to Babylon, of course. And Hezekiah says, oh, that's a very good word from the Lord. Because, of course, what he realized was it would be his descendants who faced that, not him. So, yeah, the Bible's really real. It gives us honest pictures into people's life. A man of great faith who trusted God, but then, blow me, went and asked for a sign and succumbed to pride at the end of his life. He really is a man just like us. David Tavener was in conversation with Mike Beaumont, who's written about the people of the Bible throughout the Christian Basics Bible. Catch their conversations anytime time on the UCB player or with your favorite podcast provider. Just search for Bible Biogs in 30 minutes.